1: The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. It's Friday, March 25th, 2022. From Peach Fish Productions, it's The Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Judge Jackson's Supreme Court nomination, and the death of the confirmation process. That was law professor Jonathan Turley's headline, writing in The Hill. New York Times front page headline, a broken confirmation process on full display. Well, how functional is a confirmation process going to be when 40% of the Republicans on the committee are Senators Hawley, Cruz, Blackburn, and Graham? There was a time when Graham wouldn't have been grouped with such a disreputable lot, but those times predate the election of Donald Trump. However, I have to ask, is it the process that broke in or the participants who defy the process? No, it's the process. It's definitely the process. A little bit of the participants too, a lot of it actually. But the current complaints, the ones I just read to you, the others that I've seen talked about on cable news, that what we just saw with Judge Brown shows that the process is broken. It's weird and a little complicated, but I don't think it does. I think we, on the one hand, have a broken process. On the other hand, had a weird spectacle, but the two aren't so related. We all knew the process was broken. It's been broken since Bork. Hashtag BSB. A nominee just needs to not say anything real, and they get confirmed. The other side tries to commit the nominee, hey, say something, say something real. And the nominee, being smart and judicious, say, no, I'm not going to say something real, and they get confirmed. The exception was the nomination of Judge Kavanaugh, which wound up not centering on questions of opinion, but the question of an act. He was said to have committed 36 years prior, for which there were no eyewitnesses. So, You know, I thought Kavanaugh should have been withdrawn, but the only relevant thing was the relentlessness of partisan politics. Republicans had a two-seat majority in the Senate. He won by two votes. Yes, I know there were some parliamentary complexities with the votes of Lisa Murkowski voting present and Steve Daines being out of town. But with Kavanaugh, the confirmation process was broken, truly, but in a different way than usual. Usually it's kabuki. The Ketanji Brown-Jackson hearings were melodrama. But the claim that there was something especially broken about the Brown-Jackson hearings, or that what we saw in the Brown-Jackson hearings show the process is broken in the way that it really is broken, it's a little off. All right, follow me here. The Times cites as evidence of this broken process. Aggressive questioning, dog-whistle politics, the positioning of senators as potential presidential candidates, the quote, toxic partisanship. Well, that's what's wrong with politics. That's what's wrong with many politicians and many Republican politicians specifically. But asking tough, even what someone else might think of as an unfair question, to a judge who could spend 35 years on the Supreme Court, that's not especially worrisome, I don't think. It will be worrisome if Brown Jackson weren't allowed to answer them or if the mistruths contained in the question were allowed to go rebutted or if a vast majority of the american people believe them to be real but i don't think any of that's going on at several times a republican senator tried to read a fragment of a ruling about releasing all of washington dc's prisoners in the face of the pandemic so this would be an unfair out of context quote but judge jackson Put it into context. She noted three times that that wasn't her ruling. That was some thinking leading up to her ruling. And history clearly shows all the prisoners of DC weren't released. Another major form of question was to ask her about a cultural topic important to the Republican in question, when of course the answer was gonna be, you know, as a judge, it's not appropriate for me to weigh in on that kind of social issue unattached to the law. Here's an example of that sort of Q&A. It goes on quite long, but I wanna give Judge Jackson her say because Tennessee Republican Marsha Blackburn didn't always wanna do that.
0: What message do you think this sends to girls who aspire to compete and win in sports at the highest levels. Senator I'm not sure what message that sends if, if you're asking me about the legal issues related to it. Um, those are topics that are being hotly discussed as you say and I, could come to the court. So I'm and able to- I think it tells our girls that their voices don't matter. I think it tells them that they're second-class citizens and parents want to have a Supreme Court justice who is committed to preserving parental autonomy and protecting our nation's children.
1: Well, wonderful. Senator Blackburn used the confirmation hearing to let us know where she stands in the same way that she uses countless media appearances and speeches to civic groups and her Twitter feed to tell us that she is against this one swimmer. Does it show that the confirmation is broken? I say it shows that Senator Marsha Blackburn is foolish. Then there was the questioning about child pornography. It is true that Judge Brown Jackson issued shorter sentences than the federal guidelines suggested. But as she explained to Senators Holly, Cruz, Cornyn, Blackburn, and a couple others, that was just because the guidelines are old and broken, which the senators, by the way, agree with. And it is not her job to write proper guidelines. To write the law, she's there to interpret the law. She was given a chance to explain. Not always, Senator Cruz cut her off. But when she was given the chance to explain, and I know this because I I gleaned my knowledge from her explanations. I came to understand that she was working with old guidelines and it was commonly thought and quite common among judges that you couldn't go by the old guidelines because they were talking about a pre-computer world and you'd wind up giving sentences that were improperly harsh. She did explain. She explained it a lot. And then at a certain point, she said, you know, I'm done explaining. And she was right. After the fourth or Eleventh explanation to the same question, it's no longer the judge's job to keep re-re-reiterating an answer just so a particular senator's campaign ads can include the requisite testy exchange over an issue important to conservatives. Here, Senator Josh Hawley, Republican of Missouri, summed up his round of, but help me understand, type questions.
0: I just think we disagree. I think that somebody, the more images are there, the more punishment there should be. And I want to see this deterred. And I just think we have pretty fundamentally disagreed. I've enjoyed our exchanges. Thank you for your candor. And uh, I appreciate it. I, I just disagree with you on the law. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
1: The visual of this, the split screen, is a look of deep annoyance on Ketanji Brown Jackson's face. But to see that look was to marvel that it stopped at annoyance. But an annoying senator... Preening for some future race does not mean the process is broken. It means the process is political. Of course it's political. And yes, child pornography has Q appeal these days, and that is going on. But even if it didn't, conservatives wailing on about a liberal being soft on crime, that is a mainstay of our system. I did see a broken system because it's what a game theorist calls a solved game. If the nominee is favored by the party with more votes, the nominee will always get through no matter what the other party does. This, what we saw here, was an example of no matter what the other party does being to act shamefully. They often acted shamefully. But shameful actions aren't indicative of a broken confirmation process. They're indicative of broken senators or a broken party. And to this observer, good answers to weak questions don't indicate that the process is broken. They indicate that Ketanji Brown-Jackson won. On the show today, it is an Antoine Tig. I shall answer all my listener mail, email, Twitter. I'm on Reddit. Did you know that? Check that out. But first... We're in the middle of March Madness. So if you had Gonzaga to win it all, it's March Sadness. Now, if you thought Gonzaga was a cheese or the guy who wants to eat Smurfs, have I got a college basketball interview for you. John Tower is the head coach of the St. Thomas Tommies, the pride of St. Paul, a team that did not make the tournament that wasn't even eligible for the tournament, but they had a great year, a losing year that was still great. They shocked the world of college basketball by moving up two divisions and holding their own against superior opponents or opponents that were supposed to be superior until they actually played the Tommies. I think you'll like my interview with St. Thomas coach and psychology professor, Dr. John Tower. Right now, as we speak, the greatest teams in men's college basketball and women's college basketball, we're talking about the men's side right now, are playing in the NCAA tournament. Uh, There are 12 teams left. Those are the best teams or some of the 12 best teams in America. Soon, they will name the final four, the elite, the cream of the cream. But what if I told you, to borrow a sports promotional cliche, what if I told you that the most successful Men's basketball team in America actually finished 4 and 14 in conference, 10 and 20 overall, was not invited to the big dance, lost twice as many games as they won. How would I be able to justify that statement? I think you can when I tell you the story of, and when you meet the head coach of, st thomas university because this was their first year in division one if you don't know what that means we'll get into it with the head coach john tower who has a really interesting unique story coach tower thanks for joining me on the gist
0: hey thanks for having me mike it's a pleasure
1: tell me a little bit about your program st thomas who were they what were they what was the team like before this year
0: well, you know, St. Thomas is a—it's a, a university near and dear to my heart. I grew up five minutes from the campus. My dad was a 1963 alum, um, so when I was a young kid, he would drag me to their games. You know, so I remember as Minneapolis, a Minneapolis. In, in St. Paul. Yep, St. right Paul. next to Minneapolis, and so mm-hmm. we're in the Twin Cities. And uh, he dragged me to those games. Uh, some of my earliest memories of basketball were just eating popcorn with my dad, sitting at these games, and thinking these guys look pretty cool. Well, time goes by. We, you know, I go through high school. Um, we won the state championship. I was a pretty good player, not nearly as good as I thought I was. And so I end up getting recruited by um, Division II and three schools, and St. Thomas becomes the one that I end up going to. I play there for four years, um, go on to get my doctorate in psychology, and, and I've been there coaching the past 22 years. And so first 21 of those were as a Division three coach, and you know, my friends throughout the, the years were always like, don't you want to coach at a Division one school? And my answer is no. I love being at St. Thomas. It's my alma mater. It's a special school. And sort of serendipity hits, and we get removed involuntarily from our conference. Um, and, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but long story short, we become the first institution, at least in the last 50 years, to go straight from Division three to Division one.
1: So Division Three is no athletic scholarships. Uh, true, they use the phrase student-athlete everywhere. But at Kentucky, which I'm sure you'd never say anything bad about John Calipari, kids will take one semester of school, and then they'll make millions in the NBA. And I will not criticize that decision if you're seven-one and athletic. But at your school, at St. Thomas, up until this year, you didn't get paid. There was no tuition assistance. You just played basketball because you liked it. Uh, like maybe you'd be in the band or the AV club or whatever.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we would, I mean, part of our job recruiting was oftentimes convincing kids who were good enough to be on division two scholarships to turn those down and pay thirty, forty thousand $40,000 a year to come to St. Thomas for the chance to play basketball and get a great education in you know in a special location. But Yeah, our our players didn't receive one nickel for anything they did on the court, Um, and they worked. You know, I would argue just as hard as a lot of the Division One players. We have different rules at the different levels, but um, that was our story. And and you talk about epitomizing student athletes like these guys go on to be lawyers and doctors and accountants, and and they're in school with a perspective and understanding that they're not paying their mortgage someday playing basketball. They love it. They're incredibly competitive, but they understand basketball is a part of their education. It's not who they are.
1: And you win national championships in division three and you come to dominate your conference in division three and then it's like the the uh, odd couple and that request came from his wife that request came from your conference they were well you tell me they were done with you they you guys were too good for them and they just didn't want to play anymore
0: yeah there, there are probably different versions and i i'm never those are above my pay grade but i In May of 2019, I think the phrase was we were involuntarily being removed from our conference, um, which really you can't find many examples, if any, around the country of that happening. Teams shift conferences, but usually it's presidents and athletic directors doing what's best for their institution. We had been a founding member of the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference and had been in that conference for over 100 years. And so it was um, certainly something that we... uh, I, I don't think, you know, we anticipated happening, certainly. But uh, when it happened, our administration, our president, Julie Sullivan, our athletic director, Phil Esten, quickly went into, all right, what's best? Do we go to another Division Three conference? Do we move up to Division Two? And so at that point, there was virtually no talk of us going Division One. It was really, which one of these two divisions should we land in?
1: So how did you become the first team to make the leap all the way to Division One?
0: Well, I think a big part of it was um, the Summit League, where we are currently competing. Uh, the Summit League looked at our institution and our profile from our academic standards to our location to our endowment and said, this school, frankly, looks um, more like a Division I school, more like a lot of the urban uh, Catholic universities that play Division One basketball, the Loyola Chicago's DePaul's, etc. And so as they did that, the Summit League invited us, but there were still a number of hoops that had to be jumped through, and our administration, I think, did to, Uh, just a a stellar job of navigating that whole process during COVID, by the way, right? So one of our seniors the other day asked me, coach, what are the odds when we came here to play for you that we were going to have a global pandemic and we were going to move to division one? And I'm like, well, you never say zero in science, but it's as close to zero as possible because a team had never done this. And the last global pandemic was a century ago. And so um, that's sort of the short version of how we ended up I think, really in a fortunate way, landing in, in the Summit League in Division One.
1: So was the thought, and by the way, we should note that jumping through a hoop in your sport is usually a goaltending violation, but I'll move on. Was there a thought, was there a concern, okay, maybe, like you say, there are a number of schools of your enrollment size, endowment that play in Division One and have done well, Villanova, St. John's, DePaul, but they've been doing it for 100 years or whatever, you know, in St. John's case, more than 100 years. Um, was there a thought, here's what's going to happen. They are great for Division Three, but the realities of Division I are such that they're going to get killed, and we're going to have to warn them or think about what if they lose by an average of 20 points every night. Was that, just in terms of how good the team would be, was that a thought that was out there?
0: Oh, no question. I think, Mike, there's there's 358 Division One teams. There's 425 Division Three teams. And in Division Three, we had gotten to a point where I could go into every season telling our guys we have three goals and one of them to win a national championship. And we knew that wasn't going to happen most years, but we felt like we could compete for it. Number two is win a conference title. Um, And we were fortunate to win two national titles, to win 14 of our last 15 conference titles. And number three was about human development and who they are as people. And those were our three goals. Going into this year was really interesting for me for a number of reasons. One being we can't go to the tournament, the conference tournament or the national tournament. Um, not that we necessarily would have expected to or, were we able, but that's no longer a, a goal, um, mm-hmm. at least an attainable one right now. Right, that's a condition
1: um, of making the jump um, that you're ineligible for postseason play for a set amount of time.
0: Yep, the transition from, from one division to another. But then the other part is we, we ended up, we took some transfers and, and thought that would bolster our size. We were small even by Division Three standards. So if you watch us play in Division Three we play a style that's pretty perimeter-oriented, predicated on movement and uh, shooting a lot of three-pointers. And so <laughs> we, we probably physically were not the Division three team most suited to make the jump to Division one. And then we had a few transfers that didn't turn out necessarily the way we thought. And so here we are in the first game of the season, and we end up starting the exact same five guys that we did in Division three last year, and we did that the entire season. So it became this really, I think, fascinating experiment to look back on because for decades, people have said, well, how good are the best Division three or best Division II players? And you'll see some examples, right? Duncan Robinson, who went to Williams and then Michigan, now is in the NBA. My uh, top assistant coach, Mike Maker, coached him at Williams. So he was actually the guy yeah. that recruited Duncan to Williams. But
1: if I recall, literally the only NBA player to spend a minute in Division two.
0: Y- yeah, Devin George from our conference did it back in 99. It, 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 does, yeah. it doesn't happen, right? right. And so... Here we are with the same five guys all season, and it's this beautiful natural experiment, I think, where how are these guys going to do? And you're right. We went from a team that these guys lost eight games in three years, their first three years of college, and here they are in year four, and we got a Division One schedule in front of us. And frankly, on paper, I wouldn't have doubted if experts had said they're not going to win a game, as good as these kids were in Division Three. And so I think, quite honestly, I left our goals pretty vague at the beginning of the year. I talked more about how we're going to compete and how we're going to stick together through the ups and downs, and also this opportunity to just embrace this journey that rarely in life do you get to do something that hasn't been done before or tried before. So regardless of the results, it matters far more what are the, what are the steps we're taking in this process for St. Thomas moving to Division One.
1: Now's the point where uh, we inform listeners that you are a professor there at St. Thomas. Your uh, expertise is psychology. So that is going to help. And I would imagine that that's the only option you had to emphasize goals that were a little more esoteric, a little less about wins, quite different from the very tangible goals that were attained by these these very players of winning the conference championship. So that's what you had to do. But how certain were you that communicating these goals that were more about, well, you tell me and use as many psychological phrases as you can. It seemed like it was more about inner achievement than an external validation. How confident were you that that message was going to work with players who like to win and were used to winning?
0: Yeah, well, I wasn't certain and you hit it on the head. It it became it went from very quantitative goals to far more qualitative goals. And then assessing those gets a little gray, right? That after a game win or lose, you're still going to talk about how you played and sometimes after a win you're disappointed with how you played. And sometimes after a loss, you say, we played great, but by and large winning had been an outcome we could sort of hang our hat on. Um, suddenly we go to talking more about the quality of play. I think one of the things that if you look at what makes teams special um, trust is certainly a part of it, knowing one another, um, having been through those trials. And so these guys, the the one thing I did feel good about is that these guys had been through so much and they had experienced a lot of success together and I think mm-hmm. they're they're smart guys, so they're realistic as well. So they knew we weren't going to go 30-0 and 0 this year. We didn't know what our record would be, but I did feel like our locker room would stick together regardless of the outcomes. And we were tested throughout the season um, a lot. We had some unbelievable successes, and then we had some real tests of of that culture because we did lose, as you alluded to earlier, far more than we ever had before. And yet, coming out of the season, I think we all learned a lot. And if anything, I think I feel better about our culture I feel as good or better about our culture as I did when we won national championships.
1: Were there more times of disappointment during the season, even though you were achieving really remarkable things given your jump in level and there were wins, as your record indicates, but were there more times of depression and hard nights for the soul for you and the players than there was when you were just winning two thirds of your games instead of losing them?
0: losing's hard, right? I mean, if you're a competitor... Yeah, and
1: you want, right, and you want excellent players to feel that losing's hard.
0: You you do, and so there's this tension of you don't want players to feel beat up during a season, but you, you know, I've often said if if you don't feel something after losing, it's probably time to get out of competitive sports, right? There are other things you can do to challenge yourself and um, and to pursue those kind of endeavors. And so, yeah, it was, that part I think was hard. I think the interesting part was Going into the season, I had no idea like, would we be down 20 points at halftime of most games? And the reality is, there was only one time out of 30 games where I felt like at halftime, we don't have a chance. There were probably four others where we were in a little trouble, but the number of games that with 10 minutes left, we were tied or ahead or within two like it was, it was actually that probably caused a little more angst because you actually felt like we're in these games, like we got a chance to win maybe not every one of them, but the vast majority of them we were in. And I think that's a credit to our players and how, how they battled and competed. Now, we were at a size disadvantage every game. We knew that. We didn't have the depth probably that we would love to have. Um, so when you talk about sort of the mental gymnastics that you do throughout a season like that, um, I, I think we, we use different tools than we have in the past. But a lot of it was based on the idea that, guys, are we doing what we say? Right? If we go out and we say, we don't want to turn the ball over. We don't want to give up layups. We got to shoot a lot of three-point shots. And if we do those things, we're going to have a chance. To have a group that trusted that and embraced that, I think, made it a lot easier, even during the downtimes. I mean, we had a 12-game losing streak. That's not easy. Around that, we had a lot of times of success. But 12 games, you feel a little like Groundhog's Day where it's like, all right, we're battling. I was, proud. I was as proud of the guys during that streak as I was after games that we won because of how they competed.
1: When they compared their last seasons, I mean, some of these guys are, there There are seniors and juniors on the team and graduate students. And you ask some of the best players after seasons of conference championships uh, in the last couple of years and seasons of 10 and 20, what would they say? Would they say that though disappointing, they learned from this or was it more, actually, we take great pride in what we did and we consider this season just as successful as a conference championship season?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great question because the, the, what they've been to, like our grad students, we had two of them, Ryan Lindbergh and Burt Hedstrom. Those two turned down really good jobs to come back and pay their own tuition and go to grad school and, and take part in this year knowing that we were going to lose games. So those, let me give you a quick five-year synopsis in 50 seconds. Those two guys came in as freshmen. We were fresh off 12 straight conference titles, which us in Kansas were the only schools in college basketball that had streaks like that. So here they Tommy's are. Tommy's
1: in the Jayhawks, one and <laughs> the same.
0: Here, here they are, 12 straight conference titles, and we don't win the conference title that year. We have a down year. We go 12-8 and eight in the conference, and I remember talking to them, saying that, that's not going to happen again. We're going to be better, and it wasn't their fault. They played a lot of minutes, more than they should have as freshmen. Sophomore year, we go to the Sweet 16. We go, I think, 24-5. and five. We're in the top 10 in the country, and we're moving up, and these guys are helping us build with some great freshmen. Their junior year, we go 26-3, and three, we're ranked fourth in the country, we're headed to the Sweet 16, and COVID hits. So their junior year gets wiped out by COVID. Their senior year could have been as good a team as we've ever had. We go undefeated, rank second in the country, but don't have a national tournament in Division three. So these guys, what they had been through already in their four years, where they were a team that could have competed for a national championship three or four straight years, and so here they are in year five getting a chance to do something that nobody had done before. And so I, you know, some of it might be cognitive dissonance on all of our parts, but I think they look back at this year and they say that was different, that was unique, and we got to lay the groundwork for hopefully what St. Thomas is 20 years from now in Division One. They'll be the guys, and we joke that we'll bring back to practice, and, you know, hopefully we have some 7-foot behemoths at that point who won't believe that this was our starting five back in 2022.
1: John Tower is the head coach of the St. Thomas Tommies. He is a faculty member. He is one of the only head coaches in basketball with a uh, sports-related doctorate. Coach, great talking to you.
0: Mike, really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: And now the spiel. Specifically, it's an Antoine Tig, a three-week period in which we go over the best of all the interactions I've had with you, the listeners of the show. My biggest mistakes were of a Thomas Thompson variety. I was speaking of the Golden State Warriors player and referred to him as Clay Thomas. More than a few listeners doubted my Thomas as well they should. Here's the true pronunciation of that versatile gentleman's name. It is 11th NBA season out of Washington State University. Number 11, Clay Thompson. Wow, I did not know the Warriors hired Alex Jones as the arena announcer. And now, a guard from. From Davidson, he drank juice boxes and was contaminated by frog DNA. going to have to take about a year to recover from that. How does Alex do it? I mean, in terms of voice and living with himself. Someone wrote in to say, and that someone was Garth Van Hall, wrote in to say, Clay Thomas kind of undermined your point a little. Indeed, it did. But you know what undermined your point, Garth? The fact that you spelled Clay C-L-A-Y. He spells it with a K. So here's my suggestion. This is because I'm a petty, petty man. Or maybe you could just say a human. When correcting, the corrector, don't give him fodder. The corrector is gonna, or the corrected in this case, may, gonna be defensive, gonna wanna lash out. And so what, what were you doing, Garth? You were helping the show. You were helping to point out the errors of my way. And I could do nothing more than to nitpick. Nitpick, spelled with a C and a K. Unlike Clay Thomas slash Thompson. Another sports mistake I made is I said the California Angels, okay, they're not. They're the Los Angeles Angels. And then for about a decade before that, they were the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. And then before that, they were the Anaheim Angels. But then for the vast majority of their existence, they were the California Angels. So I should say the Los Angeles Angel, as is the current naming convention. The other mistake that I knew I was going to make of a Thompson Thomas variety was I just knew it and there was nothing I could do. The fact that I knew I was going to make the mistake probably made me make the mistake. It's when I was talking about pen swimmer Leah Thomas. So I just saying to myself, please, please vet the commentary internally. Don't say Leah Thompson. Don't say Leah Thompson. Her name is Leah Thomas. I know I'm going to say Thompson. I don't know. Maybe I did. It's understandable why Leah Thompson would be prominent in my mind i mean she was caroline she was in the city but more importantly she played the actress leah thompson did an important role in a seminal 1980s movie just relax calvin you've got a big bruise on your head (sighs) Ah, where are my pants
0: over there on my hope chest
1: No, no no that was a clip from back to the future now, Leah Thompson was the love interest in Howard the Duck. You think I might find happiness in the animal kingdom, ducky?
0: Like they say, though. Love's strange. We could always give it a try.
1: Now, everyone could check to see that I said Leah Thomas every single time. I hope I did. If I said Leah Thompson, apologies to everyone. That will be replayed tomorrow on the Saturday show. I did a segment on climate pessimism, the... Emphasis from the UN that there's so much that we can't do, there's so much baked in, if you will, to the problem of global warming, which is true, but don't take away any chance of hope. Mark Bennett wrote in and said, I agree that The Guardian, The Guardian newspaper, which I was citing, their coverage of crisis is cutting edge shock therapy, but that newspaper readership already gets it. If I was editor of The Guardian, Bennett writes, I would ban all the our children's children and last chance and am I the only one who appreciates op-eds and vow to publish articles on steps that are, could, or should be taken. I agree. I don't know about a ban, but less of that, less of that, we're all going to hell, or at least hell is coming here, and more of steps for mitigation. And guess what? It's a great angle, and we're going to even do it on the show. We're having a segment of, there are a lot of optimists two generations below me, Gen Z, kind of hopeful environmentalists who know things aren't good, but rather do something about it than say, it's already too late. Another strain of email that I received was about my endorsement of permanent daylight saving time. A guy named Oliver from Canada reminded me, I've, I've been going on about permanent daylight saving time for quite a long time. And he reminded me that two years ago, he wrote into me as I was, I don't know, asking Pete Buttigieg or Michael Bennett or some candidate about this. I always ask about pennies and daylight saving time. Hey, Mike, I used to agree with you, but having just listened to your latest spiel in support of permanent daylight saving time, I was disappointed that you only discussed the political ramifications, bus injuries, but ignore the scientific implications. No mention of the sleep scientists who oppose permanent daylight savings time for its negative effect on our circadian rhythms. He sent me a link. I think it's time for the gist to book a guest who could speak to the science in this matter. And you know what? you're right. So you know what we did? We booked the guest. And you know what college she's from? It's Harvard. So she does, you know, the best case for permanent standard time will be made in the future. Thanks to the science, but also uh, careful listeners urging me toward the science. Go to the light mic. Sean Condon writes in. Very nice. I'm so glad you're back on the air i am enjoying your interstitial music selections that is all cory and joel a little bit of Michelle, and then he says speaking of music now remember he identified himself as a guy who knows music who likes music a fan of music and yet he says this never play the overly sarcastic corner jingle again it flopped and clattered around in my head for an entire day after oh you mean this one, Sean? It's now time for everyone's favorite segment. It's the Overly Sarcastic Corner. The Overly Sarcastic Corner. The Overly Sarcastic Corner. The Overly
0: Sarcastic Corner. The overly sarcastic corner.
1: No, I was asking a question sarcastically to reporters like you just to see what would happen. Oh, so you don't want me to play a jingle because it's memorable. In an age when information goes through the brain as if it never stops, you want me to pull back on an effective means of communication that embeds itself in your mind. That's what a jingle's supposed to do. That's the jingle doing its job. It's like being against wolves for hunting sh- Sean, that's what you want. You want less sarcasm. To that I say no. But thanks for writing in. Now we get to the most important part of the week. In fact, we do 14 shows, 14 and three quarters shows a week to get to this moment, the Lobstar of the Antan Twig. As you know, should you have taken us up on it, we would have given you an NFT so you can all be a Lobstar and have all the all the benefits that is conferred with that. Now we've moved back to our traditional awarding of one lobster per listener. And today I take you to an email from Henry Ruddle, longtime listener, says, sorry, it took me two days to listen to Kasich versus Klepper. It was great. I disagree with Kasich on many things, but he's sensible, intelligent, and well-read enough to make me feel the tingle of maybe changing my mind. I get the same tingle from you. Okay, we're getting a little weird here, but totally, I love it, I agree, I love that stuff. Then Henry writes, the biggest loss I feel from my divorce is that I no longer get to debate with my sister-in-law, Kathy. The few times I tried debating with my wife, she called me demeaning, whereas Kathy would say, bring it on, punk. My dad was like that and my older, my older brother used to be like that too before, well, then he maybe mentioned some personal things about the brother. Um, I used to belong to two book clubs. When everyone read the book, we sometimes had two discussions, but most of the time it was two hours of wine and BS. The gist is an oasis in a desert of banality. I'll take that, but I wrote back to him, Henry, can you back channel Kathy? It seems like Kathy could be a good resource for you. Maybe you served the same purpose for Kathy as she did for you. And Henry said, that's a great idea, Mike. Kathy reached out to me after the divorce and I told her that she needed to be on her sister's side. That was 12 years ago. So more debates may be possible, I'll let you know. And that is why I am now naming the lobster of the Antan twig, Henry Ruddle's former sister-in-law, Kathy. You've probably never listened to the show, Kathy, but you served a valuable function in the life of, I'm going to say, a somewhat ideal gist listener. So Henry, you could bask in that support, but if you could find Kathy, get her to debate with you, or, you know, get her not to debate with you, but then try to press her on those points and probe and figure out why she won't, thereby engaging in debate. If you can get her to do that, you can also tell her that you, former sister-in-law Kathy, you are the lopstar of the Antoine Tig. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the guardian of all things Lobstar. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the GIST. And thanks for listening.